Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Can I just point out, before we go any further, Alex Gold, the back there, who organises everything and front of house and so forth, has just come back from a two-month residency playing as part of a ukulele orchestra in Dollywood, okay? <laughs> Dollywood, Tennessee. So, if you... It's pretty good, isn't it? And, um, and he's had a tattoo. He's had a tattoo. <laughs> he's had a crazy rock and roll tattoo, but it'll need the it's Hubble telescope big. to actually identify it. Uh, but he'll be happy later on to show you his picture that he had taken with Dolly, didn't you? Didn't you? That's pretty good. So there you go. So, right, welcome back to the second part, the second half of this uh, Nielsen and Neil, uh, Newman word in your ear. And... Um, we, we, it, it struck me at the end when we were talking about what made Harry Nielsen special. I think, I think probably the same things made him special as make Randy Newman special. That they're sort of both artists with no antecedents and no successors. You know what I mean? You can't imagine anybody doing what Harry Nielsen did now. I can't see anybody doing it. And uh, I think when Randy Newman finally does shuffle off this mortal coil... I think you'll say, there went one of a kind, <laughs> and there won't be anybody like him. And uh, I'm delighted to say that his, uh, his, the li- his life and music has been, uh, has been chronicled and, and assessed in this new book uh, called Maybe I'm Doing It Wrong, which is, of course, a famous Randy Newman song, uh, by our next guest. Would you please welcome David and Caroline Stafford. <laughs> And we should start by, by asking... We should. It's the first time we've had two people on the sofa um, you know, who've written, written the same book. book. Yeah. How does that work? We've got no idea how the, the, the labour divides. I mean, I'm imagining one person researches and one person writes, but that's probably not the case at all. No, it's not the case no. at all. Um, on this one, it varies. I mean, we, we, we sort of do it rather piecemeal. On this one, Caroline did most of the first draft and most of the initial research, and then I took over for a bit... And then Caroline took over again, and then I took over again. And I then, took all his bits out then yeah. and gave it back to him. She takes out all my knob jokes. And 
<laughs> I wondered uh, where they were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that, I, I couldn't. It was uh, a much longer book originally. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so, Caroline, uh, can you get the microphone a bit closer to you, oh, so, so everybody can hear? Is, it, is that mic working okay? Caroline, just test that mic. Yeah, you've just yes, got to hold it up. Yet? Is it working okay? Fine. Yes. Good. So, right. Caroline, tell us about the other stuff you've written together. Uh, we've written. Well, our first book was uh, about Lionel Bart. But of course, Lionel Bart, and that was a Radio 4 Book of the Week, wasn't it? A couple of years ago. Yes, very fine book. And then we did Kenny Everett, who's a big friend of uh, Harry Nielsen's. And then we did Adam Faith. And now it's Randy Newman. Right. Yeah. So, so he's alive. Yes. Which is a big difference. So when you, when you came up with the idea of doing something about Randy Newman and you went to the publisher, did they hats in the air? Whoopee, Randy Newman. That's, no. That's, no. That's no. pay dirt. No, the publisher's there, there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, no, no. His response was, said, Randy Newman, who's going to buy that? And right. So I think we said we knew at least four people. Right. Yeah. Well, there's um, more than four here. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, they're not Yeah, talking, but they yeah. came for Harry Nielsen, yeah. didn't they? No, no, no. <laughs> and and besides, do besides which, these look like people who've still got open libraries. So <laughs> we might get public lending. But, but presumably, so you're, you're long-standing fans. Is that, is that? Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've, uh, I'm trying to. Rem- I was trying to remember. Uh, I think I bought twelve songs. I didn't buy the first one, but I think I had twelve songs. I haven't got any of it now because right. it, it all got sadly nicked. Right, yes. right. Has he read the book? Have you had any reaction from him? No, he hasn't no. read it as far as we know. Uh, we, we, we were in... I mean, part of the problem w- was that we were in negotiations with his management for about six months uh, before we got the final... I don't think he's very keen on having a biography written about him, but uh, good luck with it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Encouraging. So the, what, it's, it's also very liberating, the, the, the idea that you're not going to have to talk to him, you're not going to have to have anything to do with him, yeah. means that your, your views won't be compromised by reality Absolutely. at all. There's no red pencil going <laughs> right through it. The, yeah. other th- the other thing that we discovered in the other books is that the worst possible uh, witnesses to history are the people who lived through it. Um, <laughs> When you're when you're talking, I mean, we had terrible ones with Adam Faith. I mean, these are people who've never taken drugs or drank very much in their life, but their memory is shot to pieces. So you would get these absolutely, um, you know, bona fide stories that you'd give. There there was one, uh, a member of the Roulettes. I won't say which one, which was Adam Faith's backing group. uh, Told us a fascinating story about them uh, all meeting up with the Beatles in a hotel in the Isle of Wight, and we, we, we copied this verbatim into the book. And then the publisher, uh, you know, the, the, the editor of the book, said the Beatles never played the Isle of Wight. Yeah. He meant the Baron Knight. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. So we asked him, he said, and then he said, <laughs> yeah. oh, no, maybe it was Cliff Richard. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not quite... It's not quite <laughs> the same. It, it's terrible. I, I've had this experience myself that, that, that somebody tells you a story, you think, brilliant. And, of course, you now have the internet... Yeah. Which enables yeah. you to go and check. Oh, yeah. And your heart sinks yeah. when it proves that they just completely made and it they, up. And they can, they can be wrong on dates by as much as five or ten years. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. you, you have to check every yeah. single fact they come up with yeah. and then decide, what do I do now? Do I actually change the facts to, you know, change what they said to fit the fact, or do we just leave it out? And an awful How lot good it, a story is it? How good a story you know. is it anyway? Well, look, yeah. the great thing about yeah. Randy Newman as, as a subject is that, is that he, he said a lot 
lot about himself. Yeah, uh, you know, he sung a lot about he's, himself. He's always well. amusing about himself. Yeah. He's never, yeah. he's never. I never heard a boring word from Randy yeah. German ever. Yeah. You yeah. know, so let's just go back to to the beginnings here. This is a picture that people are familiar with. It was on the cover of yeah. one of his albums, Land of Dreams. And so, so this is him at the age of what I don't know, about right. seven or something like this. Well, to, to quote um, Dixie Flyer, he was born right there, which is Los Angeles in November '43. Dad was a captain in the army, fighting the Germans in Sicily. His poor little mama didn't know a soul in LA, so she went down to the Union Station and made her getaway on the Dixie Flyer down to New Orleans. Uh, that's the first, you know, that's how autobiographically, yeah. you, you know, yeah. you conversely get access to his online bank account with those yeah. sorts of details. So, <laughs> but, but similar to Harry Nilsson, they're kind of wartime kids, aren't they? Yeah, oh, very much so. I mean, and he didn't see his dad, really, for the first two years of his life. He lived in New Orleans uh, with his mom, And, in fact, that, that tension between Los Angeles and, and New Orleans is there for the rest of his life. He sees himself as half-Southern, uh, even though he's actually lived in L.A. all his life. He, he, he used to go back to... Uh, New Orleans quite frequently to see his grandparents when he was a child. Um, his childhood couldn't be more different from Harry Nielsen. I mean, nobody passed dud checks or anything like no, that. No, they no. were a, a very wealthy family. The whole family was fantastically but wealthy. But he was, he was kind of unhappy, though, wasn't he? There's was, there was a, a bit early on which seems so yeah. inconsistent with everything that happened later yeah, on his he, character because he, he had four operations on his eyes didn't yeah, he? he had, and he had got born with a squint had yeah. a lot of operations on his eyes was basically bullied at school and yeah. he wore these thick pebble glasses he this track two of Land of Dreams yes. is called <laughs> Four Eyes, four eyes. Yeah. and it's about being bullied at school uh and, and being taunted in the playground. So he was an unhappy, unsociable... And constantly crashing cars. Yeah. So <laughs> someone, someone who had deficient eyesight and was also drinking heavily... Well, the idea, the idea of putting somebody with defective eyesight and a drink problem behind the wheel of a yeah. car when he was 16... Well, yeah, and his yeah. dad, never dad let him drive... Only yeah. in America. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, his dad let him drive the car. His dad was a doctor... Uh, and a celebrity doctor, his, 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 um, his clients, do you call it patients, included Pat Boone and Oral Roberts and uh, Rod Stewart, I think. Billy Joel was, was one of Dr. Newman's patients. So he had a lot of secrets on them, but he never divulged them. Three oh, uncles. and look at this. <laughs> so there's his uncles, right. Yeah. Randy was born into Hollywood royalty. Um, this man here is Alfred Newman who is the most revered Hollywood composer of all time. Every time you go and see a 20th Century Fox film, it opens with that fanfare. Uncle Alfred wrote that. Uh, He was nominated for 40 Oscars. He won nine Oscars. Uh, In some years, he was, you know, all of the music Oscars, it was just him. You know, he was just uh, all the nominations. Um, And a difficult man. Uh, no, so, no? There, are, there, are, there, are, there are various... He, was, he, was, uh, yeah, he had a wonderful argument with Charlie Chaplin. He had no time for losers. Or not, no, not losers. He had no time for time wasters. Does that make sense? The, um, he was uh, a great conductor, and he formed the... 20, in those days, the studios had their own orchestra, huge orchestras on the payroll, and he formed the 20th Century Fox Orchestra. The Newman Strings, as they were called, were legendary. He was a great conductor, much revered conductor by, by other conductors as well as a composer. 
but he worked on Modern Times with Charlie Chaplin, or, or against Charlie Chaplin. Uh, this is one example of... And Charlie Chaplin, was, of course, was a, an edu- uneducated musician who couldn't do the dots. He played the fiddle and could write a bit of a tune. But, uh, so he, he had an amanuensis to do the orchestration for him. But um, Charlie Chaplin uh, turned up for the session and uh, uh, started complaining. Started saying, no, 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 that, that clarinet entry wasn't quite right. And uh, Uncle Alfred took it for three or four times and then threw down his baton and walked off the, uh, the, uh, the platform and said, if you think it's crap, you fucking conduct it. And, it. and he swore he'd never work with Charlie Chaplin ever again, and he didn't. And they, they got an inferior conductor on the project. And if you listen to <laughs> modern times, you can tell there are some shocking bad clarinet entries all the way through. I've often noticed that. <laughs> so who are the other ones here? Right, uh, he had three uncles. He comes from a, a, a sort of first generation... Well, his, his uncles came from first generation. He, he, the, the grandmother, uh, their mother, Luba, was a first generation immigrant from uh, the Ukraine. Uh, she had ten sons, uh, no, ten children altogether, six sons, four daughters. Three of the sons became hugely important Hollywood composers. That's Uncle Alfred, the, the most notable of them. Uh, that's That's Lionel there, isn't no, it? No, no, that's Emil. That's Lionel. <laughs> that's Lionel over there. Uh, Lionel took over from Alfred as head of music at 20th Century Fox. Uh, he got his Oscar for... He was the musical director on Hello, Dolly!, and he did a lot of television music in when, when the studios folded in sort of the late 50s. Um, 20th Century Fox really started doing a lot of television. He, he was the head of television music for that. That's Emile. Randy said that all of his uncles had massive, great Grecian, Greek tragic flaws. But Uncle Emil, gambling women drink. Uncle Emile had them all. <laughs> uh, uncle, uncle, my, my favourite story about Uncle Emile is uh, one day the orchestra was there waiting for, some, waiting for Uncle Emile to turn up and he hadn't turned up and so a, a runner was sent to find him and they found him in his dressing gown sitting in front of his, on the lawn in front of his house and his house had just burned out <laughs> and all his clothes and all his possessions and the, and the, the runner said, uh, Emil, you've got to come to work. He said, I'm quite drunk, he said. So he said, no, you've still got to come. So he came to work drunk in his dressing gown, got up on the podium and did a day's work conducting <laughs> and did a fine job of it too. So but, uh, Emil also worked with Randy on, on right. a lot of his that's albums. That's Sail Away. That right, they're that's the, they're working on the Sail Away. So, what, what was the effect of these, you know, these very powerful, you know, high-profile senior men in the in in the family on Randy? Well, Randy used to go and um, to listen to the orchestras uh, when they were being conducted by Alfred, um, and I think he was quite shocked because Alfred used to ask um, Randy's his his opinion on things, and he he saw that they were quite insecure. So he thought, hmm, is this the job for me? You know, I mean, th- but it is the family business. Right. So it was just so easy for him to go into it. Right, right. And also his father, Irving, who was the doctor, really, really respected his brothers and wished, I think, that he'd gone into music himself. It, so, he could have yeah. done, really, but he, he, he was, done, he was yeah. the one picked to, do, to be at 
yeah. do a proper yeah. job. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. Just in case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, in case it didn't work out. Yeah. One of the things that really interests me, which you touch upon a, a bit in the book, is that this great tradition of American popular music, so much of it comes from Russian Jews. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, I mean, it's extraordinary. When it Gershwin. Yeah, but even the same shuttle, not even. No, well, <laughs> not quite. I mean, they do come from all over the place a bit. Uh, but the Gershwins, in between, say, 1881, which is when the big pogroms first started in Russia and Poland, and 1900. Sorry? Dylan's grandparents, grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Zimmerman. The Gershwins came over. Irving Berlin came over. uh, Richard Rogers had been here a while. I think the Oscar Hammersteins came over. The Sondheims came over then, I think. They they all came over uh, and and completely reinvented American music. Yeah, just completely absorbed themselves in in, in this new tradition, didn't they? And and many people have said it, but if if uh, if you want to enumerate the Jews, in uh, early American popular music, you know, the, the, the sort of great American songbook. It's much easier just to say, you can answer it in two words, which is Cole Porter, yes. who is the yeah. only one who isn't yes. Jewish. Yeah. 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 It is an extraordinary that they all, I mean, a lot of them came from the Ukraine, from, but some from Petersburg, some from um, Warsaw, which yeah. was then part of the Russian Empire. Yeah. But, uh, and they re- and well, not only that, but uh, Samuel Goldwyn, yeah. the Warner Brothers, uh, you know, everybody who re- a book called An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really yeah. good book. Uh, so so <laughs> this is the first album. He's been styled. Yes, though, isn't he? Yeah. So when he finally yeah. gets to make an album, um, you know, he goes, he goes studies music, doesn't he? At the, yeah, he went to UCLA. UCLA. He did music. So, so he did proper music. Well, he dropped yeah. out before he graduated. Right. Because but. his teachers wouldn't let him do his final oral test in the style of Fats Domino. Oh, see. Uh, <laughs> they thought it wasn't appropriate. But then, I mean, while he was still at college, he was writing songs. Uh, Lenny Waronka, who was his childhood friend, whose father, Cy Waronka, was a, had played in Alfred's orchestra, then borrowed money from Alfred to start Liberty Records and brought his son, um, Lenny, into the business... Uh, and put him to sort of run Metric Music, which was the um, publishing wing, the songwriting wing of, of Liberty. And Metric was where Sharon Sheely, who, who, who was in the car crash with Eddie Cochran, she was there. Jackie DeShannon, who did all those early searches hits, she was there. PJ Proby was there before he came to England, writing songs, uh, you know, much like the Brill Building, but yeah. not nearly as successful. And uh, Randy started writing B-sides and album tracks for bands like the Fleetwoods and Victor Moan, and he did one for Frankie Lane, I think, but none of them were very successful. But then he started having hits in, in this country. Uh, his first big hit in this country was the, the, the Cilla Black uh, smile. I've been, I've been before. wrong before. Also yeah. covered by, by Dusty. Uh, uh, yeah, Dusty yeah, did it as yeah. well. Uh, Silla had the and and he did just one smile, yeah. for, which Dusty did, and he did. Nobody needs your love more with Gene Pitney. <laughs> Uh, and Simon Smith and the Amazing Dancing. Well, that that was a little bit later. Bit later yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the, uh, he, he, his songs started getting known, and people started coming to. Uh, well, George Martin came to uh, find him uh, to have a word with him, to see what he'd got because he'd been looking at his material, and tracked him down to the 20th Century Fox Music, where he was working as a, a music copyist for his uncle Lionel. He was sitting in the back, yeah. he was copying down music. But uh, uh, yeah, he started having hits. 
I think the breakthrough for him as a songwriter, which led to him being a singer-songwriter, was... um, uh, it's going to rain. I, I think it's going to rain. To I, I always have to start songs from the beginning, and so I was going <laughs> broken windows and yeah. empty hall. It's a long time before you get to the title. <laughs> the uh, the uh, I think it's going to rain today, which Judy Collins had a hit with uh, in '66, I think. Then that started a little bit more fame, and then um, Alan Price on his first album. I think there were four Randy Newman songs on that. And on Eric Burden's first solo album, yeah. I think there were four Randy Newman solo. So he started getting this this cult name. Then Lenny got to work at it's very complicated Warner Brothers Records. Uh, uh, well, he was head. Warner became reprise, and it gets very complicated that story of what label, who's on when. Um, Lenny Waronka, his childhood friend, became a, 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 an A&R man at, at Warner Brothers and started assembling this team of geeks around him. He got uh, Randy Newman. He got um, Van Dyke, Van Dyke Parks. Uh, Ryan Kudak. And, well, Ray Cooder a little bit later, yeah. and Leon Russell. Yeah. And, and they were sort of... Uh, Stan Cornyn, who was the, the publicity guy at Warner Brothers, described them as the high school geeks sitting in the corner of the library wishing they could go out with girls like the other boys. <laughs> and right they... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, uh, Van Dyke Parks put out this incredibly, you must know it, uh, song, uh, album called Song Cycle, which is... Incredibly dense. So, with people in this room who've got song cycles, I'm sure yeah. they have, and I'm sure Has they play it every day for cycle? breakfast. There you go. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it is an incredibly dense sort of, you know, heavyweight <laughs> album in many, many respects. And, and Randy wrote one song on that and did some arrangement for it. Uh, but then uh, it was Randy's turn, come up with your solo album, and he did it with an 80-piece orchestra, yeah. and it was called... Because that's very much the style of this. This is the original cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, you know, it's it's yeah. a polo neck shirt, and, the, you know... That was the, that was, that was the first album cover. Uh, it, was, it was originally called Randy Newman Creates Something New Under the Sun, and they, they, they shot him without his glasses and with, the, with as you say, the Burke Bacharach polo neck on it. Uh, it, it. He does look embarrassed, though, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah, as we say in the books, if you, if you lay all the copies of Michael Jackson's Thriller end-to-end, they stretch, I think it's halfway around the world. If you um, lay all the copies of Randy Newman Creates Nothing New Under the Sun, it goes about from your house to the shops at the yeah. end of your road. Yeah. Yeah. It's sold very, very badly. So Stan Cornyn, who is the, the, the publicity guy, uh, gave it a new cover, which was rather moody and with the glasses and stuff like that. It still didn't sell, though. Um, it, it began this intriguing relationship that Randy Newman's had with the record business ever since, which is always kind of... It's hopeless. I do yeah. all this stuff. I do what they asked me to. It never seems to work. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the, I mean, that's his kind of position, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but you the know? tagline they gave him was, "When his his voice is really something when you get used to it." <laughs> I mean, come on, come up with something. Well, it's a kind of fair point, isn't yeah. it? Really, because yeah. you know, I mean, what, how do you feel about Randy Newman's voice? Caroline? Oh, it's wonderful. I love Randy. Newman. Yeah. It's, but it is. I, I will acknowledge it's an acquired taste. I mean, it's been described as a frightened bison and being compared to the sound of wet sand being eased out of a bottle. Well, is uh, it? He, I think, he, I think he's, he quoted in your book, he does, a, he does a song very much later in his career, Rider in the Rain, yeah. where he's backed by the eagles. Yeah. He do these yeah. beautiful harmonies. 
And how does he describe? He says, "You know how I felt." <laughs> Can you remember? I can't. Remember. No, it's, I don't think it is right in the right. In fact, you know, he describes using the eagles on that. But later on, he's working with Jeff Lynn on something or other. I can't remember what it is. Uh, and the and the eagles and uh, they said right let's do the backing vocals and they all get round the, the the mic and uh, said Randy come you come here and uh, uh, Tom Petty's there as well and um, uh, Randy said no I, I can't do that sort of thing and Tom Petty said no I thought I couldn't do it until I did it with Jeff but Jeff showed me how to do it Jeff gives you the confidence it's fine <laughs> so they all go ooh and Randy goes. <laughs> <laughs> And then Jeff Dahl Jeff says, you're right, you're right, you're right. Did he have a show at one point called, called, it was billed as Randy Newman's Maybe I'm Doing It Wrong? And it ran for something like 17 nights. And then they billed it again as just Maybe I'm Doing It Wrong with no mention of Randy (laughs) Newman. It ran much more successful. There have been very many attempts to marry Randy Newman with theatre, not least of which, of course, is his own Faust. We wrote his own musical. Uh, but there, there have been, you know, lots of goes at doing sort of jukebox musicals of Randy Newman songs. None of them ever work. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's possibly because um, if you do them on stage or act them or anything like that, they're in your face. It's too much. It's too much. Yeah. And the last thing you want is for Randy Newman songs to be in your face. When you listen to the records, and when he's doing them on stage to some extent, it's like he's letting you listen to them. He's, he's leaving the door just a little bit yeah. of jar for you to, to peek around and say, what's going on in there? And it's up to you whether you actually open the door and go in or not. But it's a, it's a much more subtle thing. What's going on here? Oh, there he We're is. We're talking about you know, how some of the first hits that he had were yeah. um, you know, from British artists, and yeah. Alan Price, you know, foremost among them. And it really is. entertaining. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I just, just could not resist this ad because, you know, I can remember when this record came out and I can remember hearing it and thinking, that's interesting, that's novel. What, what, did, you, you, what did you think it was about? When well, you I first just heard thought it? it was about a bloke with a bear. Oh, right. Yeah. I just did. And I've thought that about his songs ever since, you know, that, that they are what they, what they are. are. And, right. and it's only later that you think, wow, how weird is that? Yeah. Yeah. So you look, looking back at it, you think, he had a hit yeah. with, a, with song. a song about a man with a dancer. And he didn't explain it. Yeah. Tell you, you know, it's just, here's the story. I mean, it, 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 you and know. there's something about just the sh- And it comes back to the point about the way he delivers them. And, they, and there's something just about the sheer catchiness of these things, mm. isn't there? That they, they're in, oh, he does in your memory tune. before you know. He does a good tune. He does. And, and he is so much in that tradition of great tunes. I mean, he knows show tunes, he knows Americana, he knows Stephen Foster. His musicality is unimpeachable. Is that the word? You've got an interesting yeah. quote in the book from Mitchell Froome, the, uh, the great producer who produced, subsequently produced Crowd of the House and Richard Thompson. And, and he says, usually when I'm in the studio, I know more about music than anybody else in the studio. When I'm in the studio with Randy Newman, I keep my trap shut yeah. Yeah. because yeah. I don't know anything like yeah. what he you know. Because yeah. yeah. he always says, you know, who do you admire? He always says Schubert. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, or, well, Schubert and Fats Domino. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes he'll allow Mendelssohn a word or two. Yeah, okay. uh, not, not many other people. No. Uh, he never says Aaron Copeland. And a lot of people compare his music to, to Aaron Copeland. But other people have mentioned, no, they, you know, they're just working from the same source. They're working from that great source of American folk song, and they're similar 
just because they're both working from the same source. I wanted to talk about uh, this because this is one of his first kind of key credits, wasn't yeah. it? That's, it was a bit of a breakthrough, Caroline, for it, for him. This is nineteen sixty-seven. Is this this Piggy? I mean, he he just uh, he just arranged it, didn't he? Yeah. 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 Um, and Peggy Lee was the person who, who wanted it. She, she'd she heard it. Thought, yeah. So she was kind of past it, really. She had yeah. a career she was at looking stall. For, yeah, she, she was, was looking was around and she'd found this Randy, guy, Randy Newman, yeah. and, and thought. And she was the person who suggested to Lieber and Stoller yeah. that he might be a good person yeah. to arrange it. Lieber and Stoller had done a whole album for her, which is a tremendous. If you've never heard Peggy Lee's Mirrors, get hold of it. It is a fantastic album, and it is a, 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 an elderly. Well, she wasn't elderly. She yeah. was about 35, I suppose. Which was, <laughs> you know, elderly in, in, those, in those yeah. sort of terms. And she hadn't had a hit for about 10 years. She had a bottle of brandy in her bag. That yeah. Was yeah. Lieber and Stoller wrote her this album of, of songs about, about being old basically they, they are strange songs and one of them is is that all there is and it's got a fantastic randy newman arrangement on and apparently she turned up to the studio uh to do the session and she was a bit wooden on the first one by take four the brandy bottle came out and she started having a few pulls and then then uh, everybody started drinking and then take 36 happened oh but she'd said in advance i'm only going to do two takes and then i'm out of here Take 36 came, and she was just getting comfortable with the lyric and the feel of the song. And, uh, and Lieber and Stoller were, were, were in the gallery, and, and, the, and they said, that's it, that's the one, that's absolutely what... And the tape op said, oh, did you want me to press record? <laughs> so the, the one that went on the record is Take 37, which is quite good, but as... Uh, as they said, nowhere near as good as the lost take 30s. So ah. this, oh, right. is, this is kind of a big, big breakthrough yeah. for, for him, wasn't it? Uh, uh, come on. Well, I don't know. Um, that cover actually is terrible, isn't it? Uh, Jan and Dean. It's endearingly terrible, yeah. isn't it? The, but it was Jan and Dean did the artwork. Oh, it was Dean Torrance, wasn't it? Dean Torrance, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, that, that, was, that was sort of saying he can't sing these songs himself. Yeah. Yeah, which, surely which that think, would be insane. Yeah. Let's get this sweet voice. Yeah. Quiet no, no it, it was Harry Nilsson's idea. Yeah. I mean, Harry Nilsson adored Randy Newman songs. He had terrific taste. So he decided, I wanted, this was 69, was it? 69, 70, somewhere around there. He decided he wanted to do a whole album just of Randy Newman songs called Nilsson Sings Newman. And since nobody in the world had heard of Randy Newman by this point, uh, it was quite a brave thing to do. Uh, and it was also an extraordinary album. Uh, it's a great record. Uh, it's a fabulous record, yeah. Um, uh, according to Harry Nelson's wife, and according to Alan, who, <laughs> which is where we got this information from, uh, she reckons this is the point at which uh, Harry Nelson started doing a lot of cocaine. And you can hear it on the record. I mean, the, the grandiosity of, of his arrangements. It's basically, it's just Randy playing piano and Harry Nilsson singing and then Harry Nilsson singing and Harry Nilsson singing and Harry Nilsson singing, overdubbing and overdubbing and overdubbing. These massive choirs. Uh, in fact, one of the... Um, one of the execs said, uh, don't you think you should give credit to the backing vocalists? They've done an awful lot of work. I mean, <laughs> uh, but uh, but it's also got this very strange sort of postmodern thing on it, which is a lot of the comments uh, to the to the to the tape op and the, and, and the, the engineers yes. are, are in there. Says, could could I have a bit in the middle of a you know this huge chorus? You'll just have this voice say, could I have a bit more of my, my present vocal in the headphones, please? And and these strange little comments that make it 
odd. It is. It's a wonderful, wonderful record, yeah. but bizarre. Yeah. yeah. You know, to listen to the Beehive State. Yeah. This is just. <laughs> you know, there is no record like this. You know, I, I recommend everybody go go home and and listen to it. But oh, Randy's, yeah. I suppose. I can remember buying this record in 1972 at Opus Records in Palmer's Green on my way home from a Jay Giles band concert. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 I knew that Randy Newman was the person you... I kind of approved of, you know, because I'd heard, you know, no, I think it's going to yeah. rain today and all these kind of things. And I sat down and played, you know, in my... Did you cry at all? <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and I... I didn't understand it, really. No, that's the extraordinary thing about this song, is a lot of people listen to it and have no idea what it's about. Well, They're just... Well, it comes know, it's sort of a there, song there about, very many about slavery, about, basically. Um, yeah. yeah, but from the point of a slave trader, yes. not even from the slave. Yes, the slave He's, trader selling, advertising, yeah. marketing the idea of coming to America yeah. is yeah. the dream. Because it's great, you get watermelons yeah. to eat and, that's and right. you can run about and you don't scuff your feet. It's, it's an incredible... It's extraordinary. Yeah. But, but it's it, also set... I mean, it, it, is, it is this brutally... Um, the, the, uh, Clive James, in one of his reviews in Cream... Um, oh, he's said got that, a really good quote. It, that, said that, um, uh, but he also calls him the, the horse foreman of the apocalypse, which I think is very good. <laughs> but uh, he headline. says that uh, uh, Randy is the master of the vocabulary, vocabulary of insensitivity. I think that's I think so true. Fantastic yeah. quote. Um, and Sail Away is a fine example of that but it started with a film actually a film idea that uh, he, 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 he him and Elton John and Chris Christopherson yeah. I think it was were, that somebody came up with this idea we'll do three films and you can have one each and you can do what you like and Randy came up with this idea of, of playing a slave trader going to America but talking the slaves in, onto the boat by selling America to by selling the American dream to, to, to Africans and he and it ended up with this. And it has the the thing about it is that you, when you listen to the song, you think, "I wouldn't mind being a slave." It sounds yeah. really, really yeah. good. And musically, I mean, that, the opening, that horns and woodwind in the open, it it is just straightforward. You know, get your hankies out. And it's, also, it was covered beautiful. by loads of people, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, Linda Ronstadt um, and so forth. Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee did a version of it. <laughs> yeah, which must oh, have been from a different perspective. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, and they do it with a banjo, I think, and, and the, you know, the Sonny Terry harmonica. And Ray Charles did a, does a version of it as well. There, there are some extraordinary covers, and each cover of it is, is a sort of slightly different take on the song. It's fabulous. But you somehow can't take it seriously coming from anybody other than Randy Newman, can you? Um, you think within the, it's it's the mind of Randy Newman, isn't yeah, it? You know, and if you buy the mind of Randy Newman, you buy the song, don't you? Yeah. If you buy the mind, if everybody bought the mind of Randy Newman, the world would be a much better place then, <laughs> because it's a mind that that can absorb contradiction. It can absorb. It's a very, very, very intelligent mind, and they're very, very, very intelligent songs. They're songs about nothing's quite what it seems. In fact, as soon as you start talking about the songs and describing what they do and how they work, you just feel stupid yeah. because you have to listen to them and you have to absorb them. But they, 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 I mean, people call them ironic songs, but irony just doesn't cover it. I, irony is not deep enough for what they do. They are, 
they are songs of many, many different levels, and they are very funny songs, very often, or, or, or very deeply funny songs. But you make the point that the, 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 the ones that are ironic sort of produce two audiences. There's the audience yeah. that don't really yeah. understand it, and then there's the other audience that do understand it, I and also rather enjoy the fact that the other audience don't yeah, understand exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, smug yeah. about it. I mean, if you are, if you are a, 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 a middle-class New York or L.A. or London liberal then, you, you know, they allow you to feel fantastically smug yeah. because you get them yeah. and, and lots and lots of other people do. But then he'll, he'll kick he you in the... He undercuts it. Yeah. Well, in, in, a, in a song like Rednecks, I mean, I, you know the song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, a friend of mine saw him play that down in New Orleans and there were people there whooping along with yeah. the chorus because yeah. they actually thought that they, well, they completely misunderstood the song. Yeah, because it starts by kicking the South in the teeth and then just turns the whole song round and starts kicking the North in the teeth and yeah. thinking, you think you're so smug. But he also used to go on the bitter end when he started performing live and he'd do old... But essentially racist songs like Under the Harlem Moon yeah. just to sort of frighten his audience. They're all sitting there in their smug liberal sensitivity going, it's Randy Newman, we, we're in on this yeah. joke and those people outside who, you know, on the street, they're not. And then you do Under the Harlem Moon. Sorry, what? How many levels of irony can my brain cope with before it explodes that here he is doing that? Oh, one of the songs on uh, Sail Away is "It's Lonely at the Top." I think it's on Sail Away, isn't it? Uh, Eck, yeah, I think uh, it is. It's, well, it's, it's on his live. It's on the live. Uh, okay, and uh, he always talks about trying to. I always want a Frank Sinatra to do that song. He still says that. Yeah, yeah. and you, yeah, I listen to "It's Lonely at the Top." I think Randy. Frank Sinatra was never going to do that song. <laughs> Frank Sinatra. But he always loved the idea that he would... He, I mean, he did pitch it to Frank yes. Sinatra. Yeah. And uh, then he pitched it to, to Barbara Streisand. Yeah. And Barbara Streisand said... Uh, it, 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 it always reminds me of a, a, a great line of Victoria Corrins, actually. Barbara Streisand said, people might think I mean it. The song, if you don't know it, is, is about... Uh, uh, I've been around the world, had my pick of any girl. You'd think I'd be happy, but I'm not. Deep down, I'm like, you know, it's about the, 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 it's, it's the same story as Gene Pitney's backstage. You know, I'm, I'm a big star and I've got loads and loads of money, but really I'm very unhappy. Um, and Barbara Streisand said, but people might think I mean it. And it was, Victoria Corrin tells this story about a, a, a boyfriend that she once had who said, the trouble with you is you say things you don't mean just because they're funny. And, and Victoria Curran said it's the first time it ever occurred to her that some people say things that aren't funny just because they mean them. <laughs> and that was, that, that was very much uh, Randy's uh, reaction to Barbara Streisand's reaction to, to singing. People yeah. might think I mean it. And he started thinking... Is that what I'm supposed to do? Write songs I mean? And then you've got that terrible problem. says... Well, what do I mean? And, and what he means is exactly what he says. He means all the complications of the human brains that every human brain has got, all these contradictions and difficulties and, and, and cross, um, that, uh, you know, if you're going to honestly reflect the human brain, you have to incorporate all those things somehow, which is why it's not really irony. No, okay. we say, because <laughs> we come to this, you know, yeah. which is, you know, a record that, you couldn't make nowadays. No, you no, no, simply no. would He'd not be prison. allowed to yeah. put it out. Yeah. You know, Warner Brothers, yeah. or whoever yeah. owns them, would not put that record yeah. out nowadays. Yeah. You wouldn't get it on play on the radio anywhere at all. Yeah. It came out in whatever it came out, the mid seventies, and we all just went, "Yeah, it's Randy Newman." Yeah, 
It's about the South, the Southern states. And again, very, very complicated songs. Yes. I mean, uh, 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 he's, when he sings... I can't remember. When he sings Good Old Boys live now, does he, does he say Rednecks. the word? No, he doesn't, yeah, he, he doesn't do it now. He doesn't like do it now. at all. Yeah. Yeah, he's I'm got, sure he doesn't dare do it. No. no. But he, he, he justifies it. I mean, he said that... He, what's the quote? He says there's a very... He uses the N-word liberally. The first song does, and it's written from the point of view of a of a southern racist, and who who then starts laying into the north as being more racist than the south is, and it was inspired by seeing Dick Ca- a Dick Cavett show that had uh, Lester Maddox, who was then the governor of Georgia, on it, and uh, Dick Cavett, you know, basically just made fun of Lester Maddox and Lester Maddox's racism, and Lester Maddox walked off the show, and. Uh, you know, Randy was no fan of Lester Maddox, but on the other hand, he thinks he 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 thought that this he was a everybody terrible... should get a song, doesn't he? Yeah, well, yeah. he thought this was a terrible way of treating a human yeah. being. You know, that just to bring him on a TV show and then to mock yeah. him. What yeah. you know, what sort of? But he, he was the governor of, of Georgia. Uh, yeah, he was the governor of Georgia. And he was people elected... voted him. Yeah, and so uh, and just the opening, the anger. In that opening, which is, uh, last night I saw Lester Maddox on a TV show with some smart-ass New York Jew, and the Jew laughed at Lester Maddox, and the audience laughed at Lester Maddox, and he starts spitting these words out, and then he gets, you know, into the chorus, and he gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and then, but then he turns the whole song around, and it's, it's about, you think you're so clever, you up there in the north. You think racism only exists down in the in the south but you know in the north they're all free they're free to be locked up in Roxburgh and just names all the ghettos where uh, uh, you know they have these terrible troubles but in the world of social media it's even more impossible to, to, to play oh, songs absolutely. like that because, oh, because one the, tiny mis- misunderstanding I know the world has gone s- and, uh, yeah, I mean city <laughs> I, sorry I, whenever Whenever the, the song that just lives in my head the whole time is a song called Mikey's, which is from it's a, one of his lesser known songs from um, what's it on? Is it on Land of Dreams? I can't remember. Yeah, uh, he, uh, which has just got that great line at the end of it. And when I sit among people here tonight, and when I went to see Randy Newman, when we went to see Randy Newman at uh, the Royal Festival Hall, and you see the people in the audience. And you look around and say, these are the same people I've been going to gigs with since 1962. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, these are all the same people who were at the, you know, Raikuda Chicken Skin Music yeah. thing at the, at the Hammersmith Odeon. And I, I always want to go up to everybody and just sit there at the end and say, whatever happened to the fucking Duke of Earl? Which is the last line of, and it is just whatever happened to those great songs that they used to have, the old days. Whatever happened to your own youth? Whatever happened to the fucking Duke of Earl? <laughs> Sorry, uh, but and it was, where did that come from? Sorry. They, so th- this is him, you know, in the studio, where he's at his happiest, surrounded yeah. by, you know, an orchestra, you know, doing doing the same work really that his his uh, legendary uncles did. Yeah, but I mean, he started doing film music. Well, he was he was writing bits of film music for his uncle Lionel in the sixties. He was writing for those TV shows that we've all forgotten, Peyton like Peyton Place and yeah. uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and things like that. But then he started his first. He he, he should have been writing. Uh, movie music from about 1968, but he blew a very important interview where 
he, he went to a, um, an interview with a, a you know, big-time film producer. And uh, the, the big-time film, well, you know, play us something. What have you been writing lately? <laughs> so uh, he'd just written a song that he was very proud of, quite rightly, called Davy the Fat Boy. Oh, <laughs> and he started playing Davy the Fat Boy and then sort of... This is an extremely corpulent character. Yes. yes. yes <laughs> the, the producer weighed about 300 pounds. And the, the producer was also bald. He says, have you got any songs about bald guys? <laughs> and so Randy didn't write film music for quite a while. He, he, he did a, a, a very bad film called uh, Cold Turkey, which was about a whole village, that whole town that decides to give up smoking for a bet. Oh, yes. Which, which you know, you don't count. Then his first big movie was Ragtime. Right. And he, he then got this reputation as being the guy, the go-to guy if you wanted sensitive Americana in your movie. So he did Atonement, he did Awakenings. Uh, he did a lot of quite very sensitive films. Um, and here he is happy as Larry, he loves orchestras, he loves conducting just like his uncle Alfred did oh there's Baltimore (laughs) (laughs) but he he kind of it fascinates me about Randy Newman is he collects the stories of the little disasters like playing Davy the fat boy to the fat executive and he reels them out endlessly not boringly but just you know this is my story. This is, this is how I tell my story. It's a succession of disasters. Yes. You know, so Baltimore, he wrote this... He wrote really something about Baltimore, which is not that flattering, really. But ha- having not well, he's visited... Never been he's never been there. Yeah. It's yeah. sort of like what's happening to Polly Harvey been, in Washington, dr- D.C. He'd driven through, I think, once. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, the city of Baltimore got quite cross, didn't they? Well, and the, the mayor of Baltimore... When he played, but he played, eventually he played Baltimore. Played Baltimore, and it's all about hookers on the corner. To, he had to apologise to Miss yeah. Baltimore. That's right. They had Miss Baltimore on stage, and he had to publicly apologise. Uh, you feel like Randy Newman had to apologise to just about everywhere <laughs> well, in the United States. You know, short people was well, yes. Which well, yeah. So oh, right. there you are. There it is. There's short so, people. So here's my question: If Randy Newman, you know, we hope he has a long and productive life still to come, but when he does eventually hand in his lunch pile, what does it say on the headline of the New York Times? Does it say short people singer? Yeah. It's a serious point. And I'm yeah. sure. Famous bigot dies. See, <laughs> <laughs> so John Humphreys, I was watching this, I looked at this on YouTube the other day when somebody went on Mastermind answering questions on the life and work of Randy Newman. The opening line John Humphreys comes up with isn't he a bit of a bigot? <gasps> Which is just. Oh, yes, and that's John Humphreys. Yeah. No, actually, because he, he has got, of course, now one more famous song than well, that. Which yeah. we'll come to. All oh, right, so, okay. Yeah. So will it be. Uh, no, no, it'll be the other one that so you haven't be... come to, and we're keeping a secret, okay. apparently. No. <laughs> just to eke out so, the mystery. Look, so, they're on the edges of so, their seats. No, it's, 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 just, it's just interesting, because you know, in the end, you are. You know, you're, in obituaries, they're very often reduced to one line, aren't yeah. they? You know, yeah. Harry Nilsson would have been every, everybody's talking. Yeah, yeah, the Beatles were always the Hey Jude hitmakers. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it would be. And was this, you know, he, he just came up with the song and, and he thought, well, that might do quite well. And it did far better than he... It went Imagine. to number two in the Billboard chart, number one in the cash And he spent chart. the rest of his life yeah. regressing. <laughs> well, is he? Is yeah. he regretting? It was the hit from hell, is yes, what he's he described. to call it. If you don't know the story, you wrote this song, which is about prejudice and bigotry. 
no, it's not. It's about short people. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And he thought that there was a movie called The Boy with Green Hair, which you know you think of something that you can use that you can so you can you can sing or talk about bigotry without having to talk about Jewish people or or, or, or black people or, or you know or one of the stuff. So you, you're not sort of bogged down with the, the weight of the reality. So he just picked on short people as the most absurd thing that anybody could be bigoted about. And, uh, uh, you know, we were talking about irony where there's an inside crowd and an outside crowd. A lot of the outside crowd were under five foot six. And, and some of them had guns. And they did. Uh, it was a while, he said it was a while before he could walk through an a- airport and feel completely safe. But the safe. fact is that if that comes on the radio when you're going home tonight in your car, you're going to go, sure. Dun, 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 dun. We all get yeah. got no reason to live. Great song, yeah. 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 Short people got no reason to live. It's a song. Yeah. It's not a poem. Yeah. It's you know it it, it, it requires you to, to be involved in it, yeah. doesn't it? But it still gets the anger. It's still yeah. it's still there. It's on YouTube, and if you look at the comments underneath the YouTube, you say this song destroyed my life. You know, yeah. uh, all, all that stuff. It's the grand yeah. tradition of money for nothing and born in the USA yeah, exactly. and yeah. limitless. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, there. there so are. you know, by contrast, you yeah. know, he he latterly, well, it's, I say latterly, it's probably the last twenty years now. He's he's become the kind of uh, the go-to guy for the Pixar yeah. Im- animations. And other with, animations. With, I mean, DreamWorks has done as well. enormous success. Yeah. How do you think he approaches this kind of work? And this doesn't have the ironical part of his brain engaged, or does it? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, when, yeah, he, I says, think, when yeah. he says uh, he's going to sing um, You've Got a Friend in Me, he always says, you haven't got a friend in me. It's a cartoon. That's <laughs> right. what he does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he distances but, himself yeah. from I, the I, sentiment I, of the song. Yeah. I think that the, the reason he's so good at this is exactly what we were talking about before, is his grasp of musical styles. If you listen to any cue from Toy Story or Monsters, Inc., the, the number of musical styles it goes through just in just in one single cue. You know, there'll be two bars of Schubert and then two bars of Gershwin and then three bars of Duke Ellington and then a bit of Bach and then a bit of um, you know crazy ragtime and wh- whatever. And he can ju- he's just the master of all these. And he can he doesn't like particularly doing cartoons because it's hard hard work. He says. The, the thing about writing a, a, a thing like Atonement or Awakenings is there's a lot of very slow passages. So you write a whole note there and a whole note there and you've got a whole page of music done and there's a five-minute cue and it's only got about five notes on the page because right. they're, they're sustained. <laughs> Cartoons is all that. is you know, loads and loads of quarter yeah, notes and yeah. eighth notes and the, it's dense with notes. It's just a lot of writing involved. But he was good at it. And John, he got the gig because John Lasseter was a Randy Newman fan. John Lasseter, the, the director, and well, he runs Pixar, didn't he? Was a big Randy Newman fan. And everybody said, who are you going to get to the music? So, uh, Randy Newman. And people said, uh, well, he does awakenings and atonement. Yeah. and those, Hero uh, music. Yeah, he does hero music for The Natural and, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, no, he'll be all right. And, uh, and he was. He was. He's He's done well out of uh, well-placed fans throughout his career. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I Harry Nilsson, John Lasseter. There's, there's any were on There's yeah. a thing the other night I was looking at uh, when John Stewart... Uh, no, when... Uh, what's his name? The um, Oh, God, the other American late-night guy who just stopped doing late-night. I can't remember. Anyway... Oh, John Thing. Yeah. Guy who pretends to be the right-wing politician. Yeah, can't remember. John, John Thing. <laughs> anyway, when he was doing his last show, they got in Randy Newman... Yeah. To, to play the piano while the 
choir of celebrities trooped on, you yeah. know, famous newsreaders, Michael Stonape or whatever. Yeah. How is Randy Newman referred to in the voiceover on the news? Soft rock superstar. It's just kind of classic. He was on an episode of Ali McBeal. Do you remember Ali McBeal with yeah. Felicity yeah. Flockhart? Which always sounds to me like... Uh, the disease of a sheep's liver. It's got Callista Flockhart. We're going to have to put it down. Um, uh, he was on an episode of Ali McBeal. They, 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 they finished, the, it was the last one of the season, and they, they did Ali McBeal, the musical, where they used a lot of Randy Newman, or bits of Randy Newman songs throughout it. And he was at the end playing piano and singing something. And I love his comment uh, at the end of it. He was only there for about ten minutes just to do his bit. He was there for a morning, and, and he said, uh, he shook hands with the director at the end and said, it's been a difficult season, but thank God we've come through it. But then afterwards he said, uh, I was the fattest person those people had ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> no, he went to an Oscar. Didn't he go to an Oscars uh, event once? And he had something like, um, uh, you know, uh, Julia Roberts in front of him and Johnny Depp behind him or something. He said, "I, I felt invisible." <laughs> it was just the idea that just you know, it just it's doesn't always, stand out. It's always his whole thing is, "What am I doing here?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's his and, whole shtick. Uh, my life has been a complete failure. Yeah, what what yeah. am I doing here? Yeah. And, and uh, another wonderful example of this, which again I do recommend. On YouTube, if you look at the great disastrous Brits with Sam Fox and Mick Fleetwood, yeah, what's the musical turn right at the very end of the disaster at the Albert Hall? It's Randy Newman playing, <laughs> falling in love yeah, yeah. with the Mark Knopfler Brits supergroup. And all the way, Randy Newman's going, what am I doing here? Yeah, yeah. And all the people That's at home are watching and think, who's that bloke? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's got him here? But he always plays the outsider. Yes. I mean, he, I mean if he was asked which of one of these characters that he um, really identified with, he said, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. He's still that, that, that geeky schoolboy who none of the girls would I wanted to finish yeah. with this because I'm fascinated by Ron, Randy Newman and his families. <laughs> yeah. Now, that, this is his, his, his second his family. Second that's, family. That's Gretchen and. So, um, you know, Alice, he. Alice and, yeah, and so Patrick. he first married. He first married Russ Weether. Uh, he always marries Germans. Um, <laughs> nobody knows why, least of all him. But he married Russ Weether and they lived in. He's always lived in the same, pretty much the same neighbourhood, Pacific Palisades in, in Los Angeles. Uh, and he's, he's, a, he's a very good, happy family man. And uh, they brought up three boys, and then they decided to get divorced, and it was a fantastically sort of amicable divorce. And uh, then he met Gretchen, and he married Gretchen, and uh, when they were on holiday, when they were on their honeymoon in Italy, Randy said to Gretchen, "Would you like to meet Ross Weether? Because she's ever so nice." And so, she said, "Yeah, that's that'd be all right." So the, Ross Weether and Gretchen went out for dinner together and got on really well. And then when when uh, Randy and Gretchen bought a new house, um, Ross Weether's husband, her second husband, designed, uh, designed it, was the interior designer who did the house for them. So it's all very friendly and the kids all... And then finished together. up writing a song Well, that's it. the song, you see. Yeah, exactly. It's the unique, in my experience, this is unique, I don't, for somebody I, to write a song about their ex-wife yeah. called I Miss You. Yeah. Yes. While he's still married to the... While he's still married, still married to the second he, wife. He did, did he, he uh, con- confer with his, with his second yeah. wife and say, I'm going to do this? Or, yeah, or did he just his, put, his, put it his, out? His, well, his second wife... Uh, she didn't mind him recording it, but she said when he plays live, he's not allowed to sing it in L.A. Yeah. 
Because <laughs> the, na- the, na- the neighbours might hear. Yeah. <laughs> but I just think that's the ultimate Randy Newman song. It's oddly oh, kind of candid. It's got the key... It's I miss you, I'm sorry, but I do. The key line in it is, uh, I always told you I'd sell my soul and your soul for a song. Yeah. He'll yes. do anything for a song. So he doesn't care who, who gets hurt, yeah. who gets trodden on. Yeah. He's honest. He's honest, yeah. It's a brutal sort of honesty. Yeah. It is, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's kept him fascinating for you know, <laughs> absolutely, and forty-five long may it years, continue to yeah, do and, so, yeah, and long may it continue. Yeah. And uh, and you know, this is uh, this is a terrific you know examination of, of that of that life and that extraordinary music of uh, of the man with uh, no antecedents and no successors. Uh, so. And I don't know if we've got any copies of this book here. We've, we've only got four with <laughs> us, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, so fight for them. I don't know if our publishers brought a secret stock. But, <laughs> but no. if, you, if you want to ask uh, David and Caroline a, a, any questions, I'm sure they'd be happy to answer them outside in the bar. Uh, thank you very much indeed for coming. And, uh, and we, we shall think about doing further duos in the future. Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> yes. You know. Charles and Eddie, whatever. <laughs> uh, but would you please uh, say thank you to David and Caroline Safford. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. I'll just briefly, Alex, when is the next one? Has he gone away? It's in June. He's running. It's June 20th. We've got Sylvia Patterson, who's written uh, a book called I'm Not With The Band. Yeah, it's terrific. And we've got the great Derek Richards, Ridges, photographer uh, of, uh, you know, famous street photographer of punk rock stars and uh, new romantics and so forth, uh, talking about his book Punk London 1977. And that's June 20th. Is that right? Further details in due course. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Cheers. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.